Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of AI Studios. I'm Natalia Barina, and this is the show where we learn about the latest advancements in how we build, use, and interact with AI. Our guest today is Sunny Patel, a tech executive with experience leading large global cross-functional engineering organizations. Sunny was most recently an SVP of product and engineering at LivePerson and also worked on Alexa for many, many years at Amazon. Sunny, welcome to AI Studios. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm so excited to talk to you. Sunny is an amazing leader. Um, I think we have so much to learn from her today. So to kick it off, let's talk about your journey through life. Um, tell us your story. Yeah. And first of all, thank you so much for the kind words. And also, again, thank you for having me here. So in terms of the journey so far, um, it's hard for me to believe that it's been 20 years already. Uh, I don't feel quite that old. Um, my background in college has been an undergrad in computer science and then a master's degree in computer science as well in Texas A&M. And after that, I um, dabbled in software development I was while I was at Dell for the first two years of my career and then switched into product management. Uh, I joined Microsoft, uh, Microsoft as an entry-level PM uh, and grew within Microsoft to lead product management teams for about eight years, which is when I figured that I need a new challenge and made a switch to Amazon. And while I was at Amazon, very quickly, I switched from leading product management teams to managing cross-functional teams uh, where and Amazon considered Call, the term Amazonian term for that is single-threaded ownership. So I was a single-threaded owner for to begin with for teams that were building the Amazon shopping apps, uh, both on iOS and Android at the time. And uh, after the first three years that Amazon switched to Alexa uh, in a similar role and um, helped launch a few nascent, the, the V0 to V1 product capabilities for Alexa, and we can dive into that if it's of interest, uh, before switching to live person about five years ago. Yeah, so you've been building AI for quite a while now, and AI at scale, which is very rare, and at leadership level, <laughs> uh, we were chatting before, before we started recording about the need in organizations to start incorporating AI. So this is yeah. where... I'd love to dive in um, and to kick it off, how is building AI products different from regular tech products? Yeah, and I think that this is something for the teams that I was helping support, we put a lot of thought into utilize, I mean, the, the AI machine learning is incredibly powerful, incredibly fun from a tech point of view. Uh, and our goal always was how do we take this this power, power that we have at our fingertips to build something that is useful, that would make uh, the end users, you know, like such as yourself and me, when we use these products, or in case of LivePerson, we were building a platform that was utilized by other businesses. So for these B2B products, where the customers utilizing these products say, thank God I have this in my life. And, and that because of this, I ha it makes a tremendous impact on my day-to-day -day job. It makes me more efficient. And I think that that's the, to begin with, whenever we dive into a capability, rather than think about how cool this is or how we could market it, it was, I always encourage my teams to think about what is the useful usefulness of that in people's lives? How could they utilize it uh, and, and we make their lives better with the help of AI so that they have time to spend time with family or be better at their job or do more and be more effective. So that, that is always the initial product discussion. And, and I think all of that is product thinking, right? So that is, that is how I always encourage my teams to think about, you know, when we started to build new capabilities. Yeah, Amazon has the work backwards philosophy, which right. I think is incredibly useful because, I mean, no matter how much, it's almost a cliche of work from the, from the customer, start with the user, 
but it's amazing how often people don't do that. <laughs> Teams fail to consider right. the customer. Um, maybe for our listeners who are not familiar with the work backwards, can you explain that a little bit more, like that mentality of starting with the customer and how that works in Amazon? Yeah, absolutely. And this is very much a, a tried and proven thing at Amazon. So for all the Amazonians listening over there, they, they'll they'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So for those of you who's, who are new to the working backwards uh, you know, process, the idea is to visualize uh, what it would be like when the product or the feature or the capability that you're planning and designing for has already launched. What is it that you as that product development team are saying to your customers? What would your customers say after using that product or feature. And also, um, how is this overall fitting into your your existing product strategy? And to write that down, right? And Amazon, uh, again, believes a lot in the power of writing down things. Uh, and they have a very uh, specific way where uh, they document or um, discuss, document and discuss ideas. Uh, so the working backwards, um, there is a document uh, format, uh, a template that everybody uses. Uh, it starts with a press release. And this is essentially a future press release a hypothetical uh, picturing, you know, on this day, this is what we're launching and this is what we're going to say. And here's how we're going to articulate the customer problem that we are solving. And after the uh, the, the press release, which somebody, and it's a one pager, somebody should be able to read it and understand what it is that we're, what is the pitch essentially for this idea and go through some of the standard questions about what is the customer problem you're solving? Who's your target customer? Why is this idea big? Why now? You know, a lot of the standard thinking, which really helps shape uh, and adds that discipline upfront uh, in the product design process. Uh, and then it gets into more details about, uh, you know, how the customers can get started. Uh, what do they need to do? Is there a cost associated with that? Uh, what does the configuration experience look like? And all of that, I think, then start to dive a little bit deeper in terms of thinking about the product design aspect. My absolute favorite aspect of any PR FAQ are two, uh, two things. One is a section for tenants. And tenants, uh, Natalia, you know this, but again, I'm going to just spell it out um, to get us on the same page, is decision-making criteria. And it's the most useful to uh, when making these product decisions to break debates. That is that is the use of these tenants. Uh, something that everybody, let's say you and I align on the fact that the design, the, pro the feature should be designed well. That's not a tenant because there is no debate there. But if we want to take a tenant to say, we will, for instance, a, 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 let's say a debate, a product debate could be, we will sacrifice complex a func additional functionality to keep the design simple for a non-tech audience, right? So that is something that's a potential debate that the product team could be having. And document, if we were to make a trade-off, which side would we pick over the other? That's a great tenant. So that section, I think, needs a lot of thought. That's one of my favorites. And the second one is uh, we always include rude FAQs. So rude, what are some of the rude questions your sponsors or your Oh, I love that. I've, <laughs> I've and, never heard this before, actually. Yeah. Tell us more. Yeah. So, um, and this is essentially, think about, um, you know, as a product manager and when you're pitching an idea, we visualize ourselves pitching this to uh, some, you know, uh, a VC fund because we're really asking for something, you know, resources, time, uh, maybe additional budget. So think about what is the what are the objections they could be raising and what are the blunt questions uh, they could be asking, right? I mean, so for example, let's say I come up with this, I'm, I'm going to just uh, take a silly example to prove a point. Let's say I come to you, you are my, um, you know, contact at a VC fund and I'm asking you for money and I say, hey, my great idea is that I'm going to come up with a search engine 
And, you know, the first thing you'll probably say is that, why do you think you would beat Google or Bing? You know, so so these really blunt questions, the idea is to encourage the product team, and that's an extreme example, but the, the idea is to encourage the product team to think about what are the objections other people will have, put them down on the in the document and answer them. And I think that it it kind of and it has a when when the final in the final document, if you include that section, it has a great impact when somebody is reading it for the first time to showcase them that you have thought through maybe potentially problematic aspects of that idea and you've already given it some thought and you have a response to that. So it just shows a level of preparedness. I know that's a long answer. I hope that answer what working backwards methodology is. No, that's awesome. Um, how in your experience uh, is building AI products different from other tech products? I think that, and I feel like we're still on this journey. Uh, the There's a lot of capabilities that I think are gimmicky, you know, and it's very easy to get taken by the coolness factor uh, upfront, right? And, uh, and 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 just get very enticed because we are just all technologists here. So we, there is a temptation to get into, uh, oh, let's do this because it's cool rather than, okay, so, so then fine, we'll build it, we'll build this capability. I'll give you a specific example of what I'm talking about. But how is that positively impacting someone's life on a day-to-day basis? I feel that specifically for AI products, I would want us all to pause and think beyond that initial reception, the initial excitement. And is this going to last? Is this really going to build you know, long lasting habits? And is that use, does a usefulness go beyond uh, the initial attraction to trying something cool and new? Um, so so let me, let me pause it. Did you have any questions or I can give an example? No, give an example, please. So, uh, so an example of this is um, when I was in Alexa, one of the uh, capabilities I help launch is voice identification because at the time Alexa was predominantly used in multi-user settings and it would be very cool um, or, and we thought it would be very uh, uh, you know make Alexa seem smarter to recognize hey in this household there are uh, two people and let me recognize voice one versus voice two and over time I'll get to know them and, you know, and greet them by their name, for instance. Uh, Sounds like a great tech voice identification. I think uh, we've made a lot of strides on this over the last five years. Um, So we started to think about how to build it. And there was a time when we had to pause and say, that's great. Okay, now we'll make Alexa recognize distinct voices. So what? You know, the voice recognition by itself, while very cool, and it, it would be great if, let's say, you ask Alexa for the weather, you know, Alexa says, um, you know, hey, Natalia, yeah, today is going to be sunny or cloudy. But sure, like, and Alexa knows your name, can recognize your voice. How is that helpful to you? Right. And I think that we need to push behind that initial, uh, the, just the, the capability, like, building cool features for the sake of it. So then we started to think about, but it has to give the user something in return because now you have allowed this smart assistant to recognize your voice, which can probably freak some people out. But what is the value you get in sharing your voice information? So one of the ideas is to say, let's say you uh, ask for music and you prefer uh, I'm going to assume that you, go, you like Britney Spears because she's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then, you know, someone else in your household prefers, you know, hard rock. Then Alexa can tailor the music that she plays, right? So also, let's say you say, Alexa, uh, what does the traffic look like? She knows, hey, you know, you, it's, oh, it's Natalia speaking and she works in downtown San Francisco and um, differentiates that. You say, call mom. So she knows to call your mom as opposed to, let's say, you know, your husband's mom. So I think that 
that's that's would be my biggest advice about how to design features for specifically AI is to think beyond the usefulness and how long lasting that usefulness is. Yeah, it sounds like in this case, really what you needed to have is hyper-personalization beyond right. the voice recognition. That's right. That's right. Uh, personalization is a really interesting one. I remember we started thinking about personalization at eBay in 2010. And <laughs> at the time, we were just like, there's no way we could make this work. Like, fun, everybody wants to do it. But I think now we are getting closer to a point in time where we can personalize things, but it's just so hard. And of course, there's other things here, which are, uh, I want to ask you about privacy implications of doing something like voice. How did you guys think about that privacy aspect of it? Uh, Quite a lot, quite deeply. And this was, by the way, around the time when the, um, when Facebook was involved in Cambridge Analytica uh, issue. So, um, funny story, pretty much in majority of the product discussions at the time, we had legal uh, legal representation in the um, in the meetings just because we wanted to be extremely careful because there was a lot of uh, end user trust involved in some of these features that we were rolling out. And, and, and by the way, and that's exactly why the idea of if um, we are collecting data about a user we have to give something back. So this notion of a privacy transaction. And we did some focus groups. And the in general, users don't mind sharing information um, with two things. One, they should feel in control. So it should be done with their consent. So the consent aspect is very important. Uh, the consent and control aspect. So one when they know that something is being collected off theirs, the more transparency that we create, I think that builds trust and more willingness to change and also giving them the control to turn it off anytime. So the consent and control aspects of, uh, from just legal aspect, but also from a product design as a perspective of where are we, how are we going to get the consent? Uh, Also what control options are we providing to the users in a way that, you know, all fits together. So I think that was something that we spent a lot of time on. And the second aspect is this uh, value proposition of, okay, so you are this privacy transaction of, you're giving me data points X, Y, and Z, and in return, this product or this this AI assistant is giving you this value back. And the user can then make a choice and say, that sounds great to me. Or, you know, there will always be users that say, no. And... That's a segment of customers that's probably hard to win over. But in a lot of cases, I think there is a big segment of customers that are willing to try this out. They're probably a little bit more nervous, but the more I think we increase the transparency, and I think that this is where product design plays such an important role and give show them how they can change things, tweak things, configure things to their preference at any time uh, is the way to win it over. Yeah, yeah, I think that control aspect is so important with AI products. In fact, one of the teams I led at Meta was called Transparency and Control. Mm-hmm. And and it was all about transparency, people knowing that, I mean, most of the time people don't realize they're interacting with AI at all, That's is right. what we found. But when they do, things when things go wrong, they want to have control. Um, and also, like, all the stuff you, you talked about with, uh, with respect to privacy, feel like we we I was in a lot of those conversations as well when um, Meta had an AI assistant that had a lot of these voice issues that they were building into a portal and um, I, I don't know what happened with it eventually but might have might have been uh, sunset but uh, or I think it might be used in AR VR going forward so I don't know what the current status of it but we like to your point we always had legal privacy right. policy and it's just like all these people you have to go through um yeah which i would i would ask you a question which right now which um uh, you know a little bit off topic of specific ai but like what is it you work with big companies live persons much smaller you know what are the pros and cons of working in really big company like amazon and microsoft versus uh smaller ones it's I'm somebody that definitely want to experience the spectrum. So um, 
for my next role, I probably would be seeking something much smaller than even live person. And it's just different, right? I mean, and, and Natalia, you've worked at Microsoft, you've worked at uh, Facebook, so you definitely know the the big tech culture. So, um, you know, once you pick a place that where you align with their vision and what they're building, the amount of resources that they have, um, and each of each of the big tech, even within the Fang, they're so unique. Uh, Microsoft is very different from how Amazon operates, and I'm sure very different from how Facebook operates or Google operates. And there's so much to learn. Um, I think as a human being, I, the the more of these experiences uh, we have, I feel that they definitely uh, evolve and broaden our horizons for sure. Yeah, the, no, for, yeah. yeah go, go ahead. For me, the, the, the biggest thing was just the quality of people that I worked with at yes. Microsoft and Meta. It, like people like you, you get a chance to meet and really learn from that take things to the next level. And uh, I think early on in, in my career, it really shaped how I do a lot of things, but it made me so much more efficient. Um, and then, of course, with Meta, and actually, I worked with Microsoft Research at some point, too, like the ability to go talk to like some expert in AI privacy, for example, like the guy who wrote some of the seminal papers, it's just that is that incredible. Um, yeah, so this I mean, that's I mean, just to second that point, absolutely. I some of the people I worked at with Microsoft, one of the developers very early on in my career that I worked with was he knew Windows driver code like the back of his hand. You know, so if any customers and these were Dells and HPs of the world at the time said, hey, you know, we're hitting this glitch, he would just think about it. I mean, I've actually watched him operate this way. He would just think about it and he's like, I think I know what what that is. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's it's just that intellectual horsepower. Very, very inspiring. You know, I mean, definitely my bar for how um, you know, strong developers has been set at while at Microsoft and also why I know I can never be <laughs> excel in being a developer in, in my opinion. So um, you're absolutely right. Like the people that the big tech acquire, uh, attracts in particular is amazing. And I also think each of the, these companies started as startups and they became big for a reason. I think each of them does at least one thing really, really well. And that is their signature uh, core strength. In my at Microsoft's case, I think B2B is something Microsoft has it pat down, right? I mean, they're unbeatable in that uh, customer segment. With Amazon, I would consider their their execution process absolutely their competitive advantage. It's very difficult, um, very difficult to rep replicate. Yeah, uh, it's, that's something I've admired from the outside is the way that they execute and the way that they're able to start massive businesses from nothing like of course with aws that's, that's one big example but they have you know so many different businesses like how what is the secret sauce in your opinion from the you know having gone through that from the inside um what what do they do that's so different i i, I think that they this is the culture that they have invested in and that jeff bezos invested in from i think from the very beginning one of the most useful um, Jeff Bezos talk that I recommend everybody uh, watch, it's he says, good intentions are not enough. It's about mechanisms. I'm butchering the title, but I think if you look up Bezos intentions, mechanisms, I think you'll get the talk. And the whole idea is that we can wish all we want about the good outcomes that we want to get, but if we won't get it unless we have the right mechanisms that help us achieve that goal, but also along the way, uh, help us identify when things are getting off course so that we can course correct. And I think that is the thing that they all, they invest and do really, really well is identify the right mechanisms for the right type of goals. And even when I moved at Lipers and I've definitely borrowed, I've been inspired and obviously we tailored it to what worked at Lipersen, but there's a lot that I feel like I've learned from how to execute on goals. 
Would you say they are tailored to the problem? The way that, that Amazon executes is tailored to the specific problem in mind? Or do you feel that it's more like a one that's one size fits all kind of framework that they tend to impose time and time over again? So I think that they definitely recycle ideas that have worked, that work at scale, right? And and this is where, you know, when something is working, um, you know, why reinvent the wheel? But they've definitely, I've seen them tailoring. So for example, how to run and monitor the operational health of services. And in my Amazon's case, uh, they definitely were one of the pioneers of service-oriented architecture. So how to um, uh, monitor the operational health of these thousands of services within an organization was something that AWS first got started on. And when Alexa was created a few years later, Alexa borrowed these best practices, but then tailored it to what Alexa needed at the time, because by this time, AWS was a very mature organization and Alexa was starting out. So they do have that flexibility and and also the autonomy that each of these single-threaded owners have for their subset of services, I think, is why I think they are so good at adapting and driving the results. And not everything is perfect, but I feel that predominantly that is their core strength. And I'm sure, like, in your opinion you have observed things at Facebook that Facebook does so well that, you know, is very difficult for another company to. Yeah, no, I mean, for me, working at Facebook, the one thing that was just shocking and surprising was the amount of transparency around everything that was done in the company, Mm -hmm. uh, which was, I mean, it was so collegial as well. So, So let's do the con section. Yeah, <laughs> we, we sang the praises and there's so yeah. many good things about Microsoft and Amazon and Meta. So to, to me, the the pro part was definitely the transparency, which sometimes bites them as well, because there are so many leaks mm. um, and it's so easy to leak things. You can go find out what's happening in any section and everyone's very approachable. So for me, the con of my time at Microsoft was that it was not approachable. There was it was way more secretive. There was a certain group of people who were above me, and I was not privy to uh, understanding how their decisions were made. But I was made to execute on them. Of course, at the time I was a very junior PM, but I don't. I did not feel comfortable to reaching out to some of the leadership. Whereas at Facebook, I felt like I could go shoot a note to literally anyone, regardless of their title and level and I would get a response and that was the the, the culture um so that that's my Microsoft con my I'll do my my Facebook con next um I feel that the bottoms up culture that was probably useful in very early days of Facebook has actually cost them uh and it's not something that scales well but that, those are my two cons and of course that said, <laughs> I feel it's inc- it's an incredible privilege to really land a, a role in any of these companies just for, you know, the experience and the people you work with and the some impact you get to have, um, you know, like at Meta working on, on products for 2.9 billion users. You sneeze, you hit millions of people. It's just... <laughs> It's like both good and bad because it's like, oh, it's just a million people, but it's million real people. You have to be careful about them too. It's, you know, you can't dismiss that number, even though it doesn't seem as big. So, yeah, absolutely. The impact part, absolutely. Right. And then the, the way I would phrase it is this is the pro for that I experienced when I moved to live person, which could be considered as a con for the bigger companies. Right. So the, how deeply I had an opportunity at Live Person to engage with the sales teams, you know, the pre-sales teams, the the client partners managing relationship with existing customers, and what and the sales what we call hunters basically who are identifying new potential uh, logos for the for the business, uh, the finance team, the product marketing team. I it was gave me so much more holistic of an idea of how to run a business, which, uh, I mean, we we do have these touch bases even at Microsoft and Amazon, but not at the level that I got to work uh, while I was at LivePerson. And I think that that could be some, 
missing from the experience at these bigger companies, right? So for a lot of the capabilities that I've helped launch for the live person platform, you know, when we're talking about the working backwards uh, mechanism is something that we uh, we um, also followed at live person or we tried to. And at the from the very beginning, I would have uh, close contact with sales. You know, if we build this, you know, how much net new revenue is that going to generate? How many new customers could we acquire? Uh, same with product marketing in terms of how do we want to message this to the market? And that was a lot of fun for me. So that, and I think that we need to go smaller in size from a company perspective to have those deeper relationship with other disciplines to the point, I think some of the the heads of the sales and finance ended up being some of my best friends that I still keep in touch to date. Um, that's how closely we work with each other. Yeah, no, I love that. And I, I feel for me that function was marketing. I didn't appreciate marketing until I stepped out of the big companies. Uh, but it's, it's really an art. Um, one thing I want to dig into that I'm really interested to hear your perspective on is how do you cultivate psychological safety for your teams, especially when they're not familiar with the the problem area that they're stepping in? Let's say you have a team that hasn't done AI and now they have an AI project mm-hmm. and you have a lot of ambiguity. They don't really understand what it means to build AI um, it, and it, you know, I'd love to to know how you how you think about psychological safety and building that for your organization. Yeah, great, great question. Um, and I'm going to just talk about something and then I'll come back and answer your question. So I honestly feel each of us in our very hopefully earlier in our career we need to have a really bad manager and a really great manager <laughs> so that. We ourselves learn and build that empathy for needing to have um, the the importance of of psychological safety and what a big difference it makes to, you know, improve somebody's performance and really set them up to do their very best at work every day, right? Uh, I personally have had those experiences and I think that while it really, really sucked. Um, oh, I don't know if I can use that word on the podcast. <laughs> um, it, it, it was it was not a fun experience to have uh, a manager that was problematic. It helped me develop so much empathy. Uh, so this is something that hel- I, I personally think helped me be a better leader, more patient, especially when working with uh, folks that are newer to the product management discipline, you know, this could be somebody experienced, but they're switching from development to product management or somebody who's not as familiar with the AI space, you know, so they're a good product manager, but they just haven't worked with AI related products. Uh, And I think, so so I'm definitely, um, you know, emphasizing the importance of creating an environment where people come in and don't mind asking silly questions, at least definitely at the beginning of their journey uh, and also don't mind making non-fatal mistakes. I, I wouldn't say all mistakes are fine, but at least, you know, there's a category of mistakes that are easily recoverable, that they're okay uh, trying things out, making that and feel like they can bounce back. So anyways, that was, that was my, it's a great question. Uh, in terms of what I do, I feel that this so a lot of like, I mean, th- this is where the the role of mechanisms comes in place is be able to detect problems. And I feel like that's my job. The reason why I think put mechanisms in place is that if somebody is doing great um, and everything is going according to plan even better, uh, I just try to get out of the way. You know, there's really nothing for me to do, right? I mean, my job is to shine a light on them and make sure that they shine even brighter. Uh, however, let's say if somebody's making a mistake, uh, that's, if I have a mechanism in place where it hits my radar, then I have the opportunity to check in with them uh, 
preferably one-on-one and see what's going on, why they're making the decisions that they're making. So um, I can I can talk a little bit more about what mechanisms I had in place, especially for my team uh, at LivePerson when the org size grew up to almost 250 people. Yeah, no, I would love to hear that. I think that's an invaluable tool for any organization to have <laughs> to have those mechanisms put in place. Yeah, so... So what I did at, and this was something that I was very religious about uh, in terms of my calendar time. I spent 90 minutes um, every alternating week with all the engineering leaders and all the product leaders. Uh, and the idea, and this this was this had about 15 different product teams uh, that were building different aspects of the 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 live person, the customer engagement platform. We called it the conversational cloud. And the idea for for us to cover uh, 15 teams in 90 minutes, everybody needed to come prepared. Uh, we didn't have a lot of time to spend on each topic. So each team had five to seven minutes of presentation time. And I had this amazing chief of staff that ran the whole meeting like a tight ship. Uh, so everybody was held to their time limit. And again, if somebody came and said, hey, here's, what, here's the product, here are the adoption metrics, here are the launch, uh, statuses, things are going great. We we covered those very quickly, right? So that's not what we spend a lot of time on, but at least we all got every uh, two weeks that signal that things are going right. I don't need to worry about it. Things are still on track. Uh, there was a second category of discussions where people would come and say, hey, here's an anomaly we are seeing in data. Um, and the idea is that they also do some uh, research before they come to the meeting and say, here's why. We saw the usage drop. We think it's because of the, it's a holiday weekend, whatever that is. Or we saw usage drop. It's because of this service going down and here's what we did or here's what we're going to do. And they would come and present a plan. And if they have a plan, they're like, great, thanks for letting us know, good stuff. And the third category, which is what the meeting was the most useful for, is where somebody comes and says, something is off track, either from a new launch perspective or a usage perspective. And I did X, Y, Z, but I need help with this. And we had all of the leaders around who probably have experienced something similar. So one, they could pitch in and say, have you tried this or uh, or not? Or uh, they could come to me and say, I need extra resources or, you know, we need extra time for this. And that's what that's that was a way of getting on my radar. And most of the time, because, again, we were limited to that five to seven minutes of time for one product team, we took it offline. And so this 90 minute investment of my week then allowed me to filter what I should be focusing on for the next week or two for all the products. And I think this was the teams also knew that this was the forum that they could come to for help when they needed it. And it it took us, I want to say, about two months to get into that rhythm where everybody got it. Everybody came prepared. We understood. We agreed on a template. But once we set that up, I think it worked beautifully. Love that. No, love it. Um, I think I'm, I'm always, I always love hearing about these mechanisms, things that work, because it's shocking and surprising how many times I've been in organizations that don't have any of these processes in place. So one of the other things I wanted to, to hear from you about is um, why do most AI products fail in your experience and how, how you know when to deprecate or pivot? I think that it's the with AI and and these machine learning models, it's very easy and, and it's a trap, right? It's very easy to design for the happy cases. Um and it's the edge cases that that really it's very because there's so many and each of the edge cases is so narrow. Uh those are essentially the, the areas where things fall. And as end users, I mean, even think about us, right? I mean, if we download a new app, you know, which could be powered by, which we're utilizing a lot of AI, you know, multiple aspects of AI. If it doesn't work one time, maybe we'll give it a shot another time. But if it doesn't work two times, I think 
it's very unlikely we'll go back to it. So the attention spans of users is so little that there is not a lot of room for mistakes. And it's the edge, it's these edge cases that usually doom an otherwise really cool, compelling AI capability. No, I love that. I I feel like um, it's matching the user expectations with the technology. Like when it works, it's magical, but when it doesn't, (laughs) that's when you're in danger zone. That's a a really great... And I think that something to keep in mind is that it's not that, oh, it can work 50%, it doesn't work 50%. The tolerance for failure is actually much, much lower. So even if something is working for 80% and not for 20%, there's a very high chance that that capability will fail because people don't come back once they hit a failure case. Yeah. Yeah. No, great. I I love that. Um, So Sunny, I think there's a lot of people who are watching this podcast or hearing it and who look at you and they're like, wow, she's made it. (laughs) She's at the executive level after, you know, having this great career in tech. When you think about your journey, what, was the breakthrough moment for you and what is what is that secret sauce what is the well you know if there's one tip or one piece of advice what would it be that that you would want to share with people yeah i um given my journey i definitely have a hard time um taking a lot of credit (laughs) for where i am i truly believe uh, in the role of sponsors and luck. Uh, I think there are a lot of talented folks out there um, that maybe today not be at the at this at the spot that they want to be, not because they're not talented, not because they're not capable, not because they're not hardworking or intelligent, but just not having been given a shot. And it's something that I truly believe and it's I try to do what I can to pay it forward when I can. So thinking back of a couple of folks that have taken a bet on me, I can um, look back at uh, this one VP at Amazon. His name is Sean Scott. So shout out to Sean Scott if he's listening. Uh, He was the one who gave me the opportunity to manage a cross-functional team uh, when I was initially joined Amazon as a product manager. And it happened, and so it was basically a combination of Sean and being at the right place at the right time, which was luck. It was, uh, I was working on the Amazon shopping app at the time, and the engineering manager that was my counterpart uh, took on a new role. And, you know, there was a gap in leadership at the time. And Sean essentially said, hey, could you help me out? Could you run the team while I hire and when I did that, I loved it so much because as a product manager, half the time I was spending building, you know, essentially new product ideas as well. Then the other half I was convincing the engineering team uh, to spend resources on it. And now when I owned all of it, I was like, oh, I can actually make decisions on how to allocate resources. Um, after about a month of that, I was having a one-on-one with uh, Sean at the time and I said, this is so much fun. And he's like, do you want to just do it? And I was like, sure. And I actually then uh, officially switched over into uh, what Amazon calls a software development manager role, which which had ownership of both product and engineering. So I definitely feel that that switch that I made from the product management discipline into this cross-functional leadership discipline, that was the lucky break. Because since then, and that was about man, about nine years ago. And that was a starting point. And I've been able, to, I've been fortunate enough to grow my scope and impact from a both a team scope, a team size perspective as well as product scope perspective since then. So when I look back, I definitely look back on that being a pivotal point. Yeah, what an amazing story. Um, I want to do the hot takes section <laughs> of the interview now. So we let, let's get into it. Um, you know, one of the things that's that's a little bit odd is you look at some of the top AI things happening, some of the top AI news, and there are so few women in AI. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, 
we're the exceptions. There, we, and I think we secretly know there's actually a lot of us out there. Yeah. <laughs> what, uh, what, you know, what, what's your hot take on women in AI? And I, you know, I talked about this uh, before. Um, it is a challenging situation that are, in my opinion, a lot of us out there waiting for that break. Um, and uh, we just need more folks uh, to stand up and be allies and not just say that, you know, I mean, not just say the words, but show it in their actions. Uh, and there are, in my opinion, um, so many times that, uh, or I shouldn't, maybe shouldn't exaggerate, like not so many, I've definitely seen it a few times where uh, it's easier to go with a safer choice, go with a man for a role, as opposed to taking a bet on a woman, right? And the more that we, uh, being in the roles that we are, we promote that when we see something like that speak up uh, and also uh, bring in true allies, like people who will actually, like people like Sean Scott and of the world, right? Uh, that uh, take a chance on somebody and give them that psychological safety, as you mentioned. Um, and it, it it's the, and, and the people who need to do that are the people who are in uh, positions of power today. And that's what, that's what I would like to see. I, I think we all would want to see that more. Uh, and it's unfortunate that it doesn't always happen. And the people that I absolutely detest are the folks that say the words and you know add the oh uh, yeah oh yeah you know, I'm, a, I'm a ally and you know when push comes to shove and a hard decision or a hard trade-off is made they don't show it in actions like yeah, that's yeah. really a, no, that, a button issue for me that's that's my hot take actually that's perfect the the people who do the optics but actually don't follow through and you don't see the back end because the women don't want to take the risk and they don't want to tell their truth because there's really nothing to gain <laughs> from doing right. that publicly. Uh, but we know that a lot of that happens. On the other hand, we talked about this one is, uh, you know, my hot take is women are not victims. We we have the power we need to take control and we need to step up. Um, but on the other hand, I'm tired of leading it. <laughs> And and you're absolutely right. I I think it's very difficult to talk about this topic and people to share that, to come forward and share their experiences without the risk of being seen as victims. Uh, Right. And, and I think that's why we're not hearing more real life use cases. And it actually creates that room for people to then come talk about this, you know, just marketing stuff of, oh, we are a bias-free company. We are, we believe in equality. And then you see firsthand that that's actually not true. And everybody it's not true, knows it's not true, but then nobody is standing up and saying, hey, but here it doesn't add up, right? I mean, here's a cognitive dissonance yeah. of you're saying these words, but in this instance, your actions actually were counter to what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Who's your favorite AI woman to watch? Well, I mean, I think this is going to sound uh, cliche now, uh, right? But Mira Murari is somebody I definitely have a girl crush on. Um, Mira, you're listening, <laughs> and you're in Seattle. Love <laughs> 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 it. I wish people actually talked more about her, right? I mean, she created what is being held as one of the biggest tech inventions of this decade and 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 sure she's she's i've seen her on talk shows but i wish she was out there a lot more i mean she is definitely the i would call i mean i, I totally mean this as a compliment i would call her the it girl of uh the ai industry at this time yeah mine is clara she who just became the chief ai officer at salesforce and yep. i i'm looking to see what uh, she does. I'm very excited that she has that role. So, um, 
And 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 I think that this is we should be doing this more. We should be promoting the the awesomeness that we are seeing from women and yeah. talking about it more. Yeah, yeah. All right, hot take two. How severe is the AI threat? Just another one of these letters came out today. <laughs> All right, I would love I would love to hear your take on this. And this is something that me and my uh colleagues, we talk about this quite a bit. After hearing all the sides of this, um, you know, the Elons of the world who thinks everything should be stopped until we have regulations, um, and, you know, the other folks who think there should be no regulation. Um, my, personally, I worry the most uh, about deep fakes. Um, the rest, I feel that Yes, there'll be bad actors who'll use AI, you know, and they have all they have always been, right? I mean, so for example, um, you know, create but having bias within algorithms. But then, right now, something that is not being done by AI is being done by human beings, and human beings are fundamentally biased. So I don't know. How, while there is a risk of bias in AI without regulation, we're also in an imperfect world today. But the deep fakes are getting so good. Uh, I worry, and it's it's becoming so democratized. Uh, and again, it was a threat that always existed, but now anybody can create a fake video, anybody can create a fake picture, and it's going to be so good that the algorithms need to be able to keep up to identify. So I feel that this whole verification, AI verification, would will very quickly emerge as the the something absolutely needed and i'm sure there's going to be some regulation around that yeah uh that worries me you know and and like silly settings like let's say in schools or teenagers somebody makes a a deep fake video about to bully somebody it could impact lives and those are the scenarios that worry me yeah, yeah, no, I that's something we touched on in one of the earlier conversation. I had an uh, ex Google director of AI, his name is Barack Tarovsky, and um, he his his similar point that he made was it's just we're gonna have an explosion of content, fake AI content. So right. whether it's deep fakes, whether I mean AI generated content is just gonna flood everything, um, and it's gonna be hard. I, my hot take on this one is I'm still scared, more scared of people than I am of AI. <laughs> I, I don't think it's the AI so much. It's what people do with it. And I think if it's used in um, high stakes scenario uh, where you give AI the decision to make these or the power or decision making power, I right. think that that's where it gets dangerous. But ultimately, I'm still more, I'm way more scared of people than yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right. The other thing, uh, the and I think that this is where I, this is my belief. You know, and we're in this spot where nobody knows, but with AGI, this machines taking over the world, the Terminator scenario, I'm less worried about. I'm, you know, I feel like machines don't have bad intent. The bad intent has to be programmed into them. Um, somehow that scenario just doesn't worry me as much it doesn't seem yeah. as real to me the yeah. the deep fake definitely is seems like a more immediate threat and more um an area where bad actors could do a lot of damage very quickly yeah no there was another one i'm gonna take a tangent here i might i cut this out but um another really interesting point that nobody talks about is how we might merge with ai and mm -hmm. uh, Tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> so we already have we have uh, technology built in. So, so, for example, pacemaker is an example of something ah, that's not human, right. right? Yeah. But over time, we might build more and more into our actual biology to extend our capabilities. Or, you know, nowadays they have very good um, limbs for people who don't who have legs or, or arms. And so there's that extension um, and, and eventual merging that is an interesting points um I mean, but the way you're saying it it actually sounds cool right i mean because yeah, yeah. if especially i think the three areas where ai can make the biggest difference is finance healthcare and education right and this seems like that imagine somebody who is who 
has a significant loss of functionality within their body and AI can augment that. That seems like a lot of goodness that can happen. I get it, like that bad actors can do bad stuff with anything. Uh, goes to your point about <laughs> being scared of people, not AI. Yep, yeah. Um, third tech, spill the tea, kind of. How much do you think social media and news is and news is actually effective in educating people about AI? Oh man, um, I think social media is very ineffective uh, in getting the right information to the right. Social media, I think, definitely amplifies this whole problem created by echo chambers uh, of all sorts, right? And I think it makes us more divisive about this. So at this point, if somebody is significantly against AI, I it must have already happened. They're probably seeing a lot of content on social media that is you know, really validating their thoughts and playing up the confirmation bias uh, and vice versa. People who are positive are probably seeing a lot more positive. And I don't think social media is an effective way uh, of disseminating information to break either of those beliefs. If anything, I think it's making it worse. Uh, and this is through self-selection, right? Uh, I think we definitely need more forums and more openness. And I think that's um, where we debate, like debate very passionately, right? Every All sides come to the table and uh, basically put their points across and we're able to have that engaging conversations. And I don't see that happening on social media at all. If anything, it's more about aligning with people on social media that you already agree with and then riling riling your, uh, each other up uh, on whatever fears or concerns that you have. Yeah, yeah, no polarization for me is a real concern. And um, yeah, I think even around AI, the polarization of people who think it's going to destroy us and people who think, no, that's not at all the case. But I agree with you. I don't think... Um, you know, you get so much of this narrative. It's a sci-fi narrative, which makes it cool and, and interesting. But the reality of building AI is just so different. Uh, it's always I know. And I feel like people, more people should use it because I also see a lot of articles on yeah. social media on, yeah. on LinkedIn about, yeah. Yeah. oh, look at this. Um, you know, how cool chat GPT can help write your resume and make this so much better. I can tell you with personal experience, no, ChatGPT does not write your resume. It actually <laughs> takes a lot of work on your own to make a killer resume. Yeah. Yes, it's a very useful tool, you know, and yeah, it's yeah. because like one of ChatGPT's strengths is sentence correction, right? Being able to uh, put together complex sentence structures in a more sophisticated way to make it concise when needed. So ChatGPT is definitely a very useful tool, but this myth that sometimes gets promoted on social media of, oh, chat GPT, do these like five, six things and then you'll have this amazing resume. No, that's not true. And I wish more people actually tried it. And I think that that's the kind of notion that social media, I think, unfortunately promotes. Um, like I said, I, in general, my personal belief after listening to uh, a lot of thought leaders share their opinions, I'm more bullish about uh, AI rather than think this is going to destroy humankind. When folks like Elon Musk and Jeff Hinton talk about how they're fearful, my instinct is not that I immediately think, oh, they're right, but I, it definitely makes me pause and consider why are they saying that. Um, and there's a lot of useful content also on social media where I can go back and say, what I mean, Jeff Hinton, for instance, like, you know, her, you know, quit Google because he was so worried about uh, what this could lead to, right? So definitely understanding what is this, where is he coming from? What is worrying? So as, and doing, considering that viewpoint and at least understanding why, I think those are the type of things that I wish more people did. Use the technology to understand how good or bad it is. And also when somebody is saying something that's 
opposed to what you believe, at least spend some time to understand why. Why are they saying that? Yep. That's what yep. we need. Yep. Love it. Uh, what's next for Sunny Patel? <laughs> um, definitely taking the summer off and spending time with kids. It's been amazing. Um, and I, if I had a magic wand and I could just create what I want and manifest what I want next, and I do believe a lot in the power of manifestation, um, I, I want to build, help build something from scratch. I think that's, that's what I want to do. Uh, be part of a kick-ass team, uh, a smaller team, definitely something smaller, uh, a smaller team, um, find a, my herd of people, my tribe of like-minded people passionate about disrupting an industry and um, and I can play my part of uh, leading product and tech. Um, that's what I want to do. Can't wait to see what you build next. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sunny. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Yeah, it's always a pleasure. Thank you again for having me. Thanks. Bye. Bye.